This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. Thanks for joining the conversation today. We're so excited you're here. We're in the middle of a series titled Go Home, Finding Our Way. And each of these conversations will look at common assumptions regarding the home and its proper place in our lives um, for both men and women and in relation to the church. So these conversations have brought up all sorts of things that we need to talk through and sort through. Hannah, we're just getting started, but my mind is already buzzing with these things. It is. Uh, well, my mind, too. I don't know if your mind is buzzing, but I know my mind is buzzing. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I definitely. feel like we're, we've touched the surface of so many things, but every one of these conversations that we've already had, whether we were just talking about the questions that we would like to answer, like in the first episode, mm-hmm. or last time talking about the idea of vocation of home, um, mm-hmm. of the calling of what are we even talking about. Um, so I am so excited for this series, and I'm particularly excited uh, for what we have today. Me too. Uh, as we've been sorting through these initial um, elements, and and I see them as like puzzle pieces, you know, when you're doing a puzzle and you're trying to find the edges first, do you do that? I don't know if you do that or not. I but do. If, this is like the strategy, like we need the framework and then we're going to fill in the picture. I feel like we're starting to get the edges together and maybe we can start working on some of the little scenes. I like to always pick a little scene that I'm going to work on and pull those pieces into one pile and work them. And so I think that's what we're going to do today is we're going to pull together some pieces to work on a little vignette in the middle of the puzzle and see Mm -hmm. if we can make sense of it. And what we want to consider today is the question of the home and the house and the people who live in it and how that all Mm -hmm. relates. Because it's one thing to tell a person to go home um, as we're wrestling with that question, what would it mean to go home? And yet for so many people, there may not be a place to go to. You know, what what happens if you don't have a place to call home? Or what does it even mean when we think of our homes and our houses and the people who kind of orbit that space mm-hmm. in the world. So much of that that charge, go home, or that mandate, go home, that, that has so much behind it in the assumption that you are locked in with, with a place and a people. And um, in some ways, it's like, it gives you a sense of identity if you know your your home and your people. I mean, I even when you are out and about doing your regular daily life, when you think of, oh, I'm going to head home, there's so much 
in that, isn't there? It's so rich with the feelings and the connections and the relationships, and it's your home, and you walk in, and it's all familiar. There's so much with that that is good, but not everyone has that experience. Home isn't always like that for everyone. And so um, I I think it's good that we kind of sort this thing out because home and housing um, is all bound up with our relationships with others and and how we, we think of going home and being at home. Yeah, where I live, um, you know, obviously, I have a very clear image of home. For me, that Mm -hmm. elicits the place that I um, embody with my husband and my kids, and I can picture it immediately, this brick ranch and the land that we live on and the way we've developed it, the way I have decorated it, all of those things are bound Mm -hmm. up in that word for me. So if someone told me to go home, I would know immediately that's where I'm going. But it wasn't the case. Um, That wasn't always the case because for the first about 10, 11 years of marriage, my husband had a very, and I had a very transient kind of mm. relationship to home where we we rented a lot. Um, we mm-hmm. stayed in a lot of different places. We moved probably average like every 18 months for his work and trying to find our place. And, you know, it wasn't always easy to to find home. It wasn't always yes. easy to yeah. find a, a house in our price range or a place that we could uh, kind of settle into. I remember we were in a rental place once and I was just feeling very overwhelmed by the fact that it didn't feel like home. Yes. Yep. And yep. I hadn't done any decorating or done anything that I could make my mark on it. And someone challenged me and said, well, you know, these are the walls that your children are going to grow up looking at or even right now are looking at. And so there was this sense of you need to embody this place. But even those years of kind of wandering and looking for a sense of home has um, reminded me of how many people are having to find perhaps non-traditional ways of living. Yeah. And even Mm -hmm. living together, even if it's just to afford a space together. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is kind of echoing back to this co-living trend that has really been on the rise for a while. And long time ago, like one of our first episodes, um, we talked about this. And so I'll make sure to get that in the show notes. But we talked about this co-living, cohabiting trend. And it's just been growing over the last few years where now there are companies that are setting up these co-living communal residences where it's almost like almost like a dorm like you have your own space but there's common living area because people are looking for a sense of home um, that they can't get because housing can be difficult especially in areas that are very expensive people just cannot afford to live where their work is and so they're finding shared community in these these corporate settings, basically. It's like a like an apartment for single people to all share life together. Yeah, I was going to say my assumption when I hear that kind of thing is automatically to um, assume unmarried people or single people mm-hmm. or professionals who mm-hmm. um, also maybe are higher earners or they have the ability yeah. to buy into uh, a prefab community, as it yeah. were. Yeah. Um, 
and that becomes home. And, and you're mm-hmm. kind of, you're on your own in a way, um, but you're also tapping into this larger network that has been constructed for you. Mm-hmm. But I've also seen uh, reports, and and this is coming out of, you hear a lot about maybe the California housing crisis, especially in uh, San Francisco area, Silicon Valley, where you have this massive um you know, wealth boom, but you also have poverty within the midst of that. And and the housing right. question is hitting both ends of the spectrum. Um, b- recently, I saw this news item uh, from out of Oakland where there was a group of homeless mothers who had kind of bonded together with their kids and they had taken up residency in an uninhabited house. The, it was not a house they owned, but it was vacant oh, and it was yeah. it was not being used. And so as a collective, they kind of moved into it. Um, and there was this legal battle going on for months about whether they could stay there. Um, <laughs> and they were just recently evicted. And, and part of the question... And it seems like there was an attempt in part to bring attention to the question of housing, to the cost of housing, mm-hmm. homelessness, but also um, how do we take care of the people that we are responsible for? How do we find and build relationship um, around this physical space that we need, you know, to kind mm-hmm. of put roots down? And and what I found so interesting is it wasn't just a matter of having a roof over your head, right? Um, Because Mm -hmm. one of the conversation points within this particular, um, you know, uh, news event was, well, they could have found housing in homeless shelters, right? Mm -hmm. This wasn't Mm -hmm. their property. They had taken up residence in a house that they did not own. So why would they not just go to a shelter? I mean, that's just a roof over your head, right? You're out of the elements. It's like a a practical question. Well, if you need a roof, go go to where it's provided rather than squatting. And I think that kind of pulls this, one of these threads that we're trying to understand in this larger conversation is what is the relationship between this concept of home the places we live, and the people that we live with. Because there Mm -hmm. is something about support and people and place and agency and being able to have your own space and function as a micro community within your home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because it is allowing you to flourish, right? I mean, if if you have just a roof over your head, that's not solving all of the, the needs that you have. It's not just that. It is how do you have relationship with people within that space? And, and what does that do for you in terms of helping you to walk out your, your calling, your giftedness, and, and to be a part of kingdom work as a, as a Christian, being part of society, all of that sort of stuff? I think it's um, the way I tend to think of home or household or family, the connection points between these things is that perhaps we could think of the household or the physical house as the physical embodiment of the lives and the souls Mm -hmm. of the people who live there. And together, Mm -hmm. that is what is creating a home. 
Um, mm. So you can't have a disembodied life, right? As people, You're we are right. both material and immaterial, and together that makes up who we are. But but a family or or a group of people who are trying to form community do have to have that kind of place or embodiment for it to work. And so there's this fascinating yes. thing happening between that that I think deserves further exploration. Oh, definitely. Well, if we're going to think of the people that we are connected to in creating this home, traditionally, at least here in the in the United States and Western mindset, we think of the nuclear family, right? We think of um, parents, children, marriage, creating this unit. And it's it's rather tight. Um, I know over the generations, families have become smaller. So the families used to be quite large in terms of number of children. But now they're a bit smaller. You know, we think of mom, dad, and how, how many kids? 2.3 or whatever that average used to be. And, and so it's smaller than it used to be. And so it isn't quite as far reaching. There aren't as many um, people that we are in relationship to under that roof. So that has been the definition of family, which then makes up how we think of our home and how we think of these relationships to the society. And I think you can even see that in the architecture of homes, right? Oh, so, yeah. Um, you have this image of the big old farmhouse. And part of that is because it was a big old family. <laughs> it was a whole yep, lot of people. Space. All the people. <laughs> growing up together um, mm -hmm. in this household. And then for a while, you saw kind of um, houses shrinking but mm -hmm. now we've done this reverse thing where the goal, like the American dream, would be to have a large house with yes. actually fewer bedrooms and more of these kind of um, like game rooms or dens. Yeah, specialty or, spaces. Right. I like to think and of so them as that. Like you need a room dedicated for every activity. Your craft room. Right. And so yes. it, it becomes more of a home is where the hobbies and the consumption and the entertainment happen. Um, yep. And and it's interesting just f the physical way we think about this. Um, but I also wonder what it says about how we view who is part of family. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We we are thinking very specific members. Um it, it's it's smaller and more inward rather than larger and outward. For sure. And I heard recently um someone describe family as a constellation. Right. So the family constellation. And, and it was such a brilliant image for me because I felt like it described the way people's lives affect each other and you're bound to them. Um, that there is this kind of gravitational pull between the planets. Like if you think of a solar system or you think of the Earth in space where it is bound and it's um, orbiting the sun, but at the same time, the moon is orbiting the earth. And at the same time, it's caught in this web of planets whose gravitational pull on each other keeps everything where it's supposed to be. And so then the question for me becomes, well, who belongs in those orbits? Right, right. Who is in your orbit? Who should be in your orbit? Oh, and and the number of people in in the orbit, it will shift things and balance it out differently. So yeah, that's really interesting. I like that picture a lot um, of who are you revolving around? Um, who 
is in proximity to you, whose whose lives are overlapping or working together in conjunction to create this pattern. Like that's really interesting to me. And I think there's a strong basis for marriage and biological children to be essential to that, to be included. You know, that's sure. an essential part of how we understand family. But I mm-hmm. wonder if we have kind of isolated the nuclear family from a larger understanding of who belongs in our constellation. So oh, sure. in Western mm-hmm. culture, we predicate this idea when we say family or we say a homemaker, right? So I use the word homemaker and I I immediately think of the housewife who's married and mm-hmm. has kids. And yet yep. we all exist in home. And we all exist in family and we all have this calling to be makers of our home life. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's something happening in the categories we're using in the West that nuclear family becomes the dominant way we think about um, the people that belong in the home. And Mm -hmm. and one of the things I think just if if we can broaden culturally across the globe, even in this moment in time, we don't tend to think intergenerationally, right? So we don't tend to think, oh, grandma and grandpa live with you or great grandma lives with you or your aunt or this person, um, where the home includes Mm multi-generations, not just the nuclear family. Um, And we do tend to um, make that like – Unusual. I'm I, not. It's not abnormal, but it's unusual if you have your grandparents living with you or an extended family member living with you. We we don't see that very often, and so then it it does kind of pop up as like, oh, that's different when you have a, another person as part of your nuclear family. But intergenerational homes, that's something that is common other places other cultures, almost to the point where um, it is uncommon if you don't have your parents living with you, if you don't have all of these different family members. And so I think that the way that we have um, shaped our definition of of nuclear family, of home, that has made it um, much more like self-supporting with the parents and the kids rather than it being um, this network of relationships where you can balance each other out, help each other. It, it, it does have that sense of like, make it work on your own, like get your own strength, get it done. And I think that's part of our American ideals is you go to it and you get your own thing done rather than we're all in this together and we're, we're, headed toward the same goals in terms of living together in community and living this family life rather than individualism. Yeah. And I think there's also the fallout. It's an unexpected, unintentional fallout. But if you predicate home on the nuclear family alone, um, Mm -hmm. you have basically sent the message that if you're not married and you don't have kids, you're not really in home, right? You can't really be in family. Um, And Mm -hmm. and that fallout affects um, single people the most. It affects unmarried people because they, how are they then 
to build this thing we call home. If the rest of us right. who are married or have kids have kind of isolated into our own spaces. Um, right. And and I think you, you see that and you hear that conversation growing, but I think there's really a lot of confusion in this moment about um, how we could have homes that that value marriage, that value child um, rearing, but don't mm-hmm. become isolated and absorbed with that alone. Right. There's some balancing that's needed here. And I've I've so appreciated in the past few years how many voices are coming forward talking about what does it look like to be a single person um, living in society, being part of the church, and how we can understand that experience and and make it less isolated or um, less unusual sounding to us, um, making it part of like you're you are brought in and welcomed in rather than the oddity. Um, and I, I so appreciate that because we need to be thinking that way. And I'd say the same thing for for me, Mike and I are married, but we don't have kids. And we've always felt a little bit on the fringe of some things in regard to church life and church community because we didn't have that connectedness. But we've also found really interesting, uh, meaningful ways of orbiting with people who have kids and loving those kids um, as honorary um aunts and uncles. And we've loved that. And my, and even with our um, siblings who have kids, we are their aunts and uncles and to be in their lives. But it's required a different way of looking at how we move in family and take part of family and broadening that perspective. So, and this is definitely something that's needed. And I don't think you can uncouple it from the physical reality of home. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to have a vision of home that if you are married includes that, if you have children includes that, but is not necessarily limited or defined by those two features yeah. alone? What does it mm-hmm. mean to have a vision of um, your house even, your housing mm-hmm. arrangements? Um, yep. And not even the question of who's necessarily living in your home 24 hours a day, but like what kind of openness do you have? Do you have a vision of your house and your household as a place for this constellation of people that you are bound to both physically, biologically, and spiritually are in community together as brothers and sisters um, and in sons and daughters of God? Mm. Well, as we've been talking about these things, um, we want to let our listeners in a little bit. As we've been working on the outline for this conversation, Hannah, you mentioned Dr. Wesley Hill as someone who we would love to hear from because he's thought deeply about these things. Um, These are ideas that belong in this conversation, but we wanted to bring in someone who's in the midst of it, living it out. So um, all of the thought that Dr. Hill has put into this has led to a rather unique family structure for him personally, um, because he's called to singleness and celibacy. Um, So we want to 
bring in a bit of that conversation for all of you to hear. Um, just so you know a little bit about him before he jumps in, um, he's an associate professor of biblical studies at Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, and he's also a deacon in the Episcopal Church. Hey, Wes, welcome to Persuasion. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be on. Oh, we are thrilled to have you here and to have you joining us because we want to add your insight into this particular conversation in our Go Home series. So so as you know, Hannah and I are parsing out the common paradigms and frames that we use to define home and family. And we wanted to pick your brain about the way we are defining our familial relationships rooted at home. And we know that you've put much thought into this and it's reshaped your personal home life. Could you just share a bit about your thoughts of home and family and how that's taken shape? Absolutely. I, I'd love to. I, I mentioned to you when we were talking a little bit ago off the air, uh, just how much I've thought about this, how much I care about this. So this is uh, right right in my wheelhouse and I'm oh, excited good. to be talking about it with Yay. you. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe I should just sort of tell it in story form, kind of how Please I do. ended up having the, the, the life that I'm living right now. Um, it was toward the end of graduate school. And I was kind of um, trying to discern what would be next and where I would move. And uh, the job where I currently am now opened up as a possibility. I I teach at a small Anglican seminary uh, near Pittsburgh. Mm. And I was living in the UK at the time. And I had a really close knit group of friends, most of them other graduate students. Uh, Also, I was really plugged into my church and had built significant relationships there. And I was feeling really sad about leaving and kind of coming back across the ocean and moving to a place where I had not lived before. I'd never lived in Pittsburgh. So I didn't have a network of, of friends already in place. And I'm a single person. I, I'm, I've written about that. I'm sort of single uh, by conviction, by out of a sense of calling. And so, you know, I, I was going to be moving alone. I wasn't moving with a spouse or with children. And so I started to pray that God would, you know, give me deep rich friendships in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. I didn't I didn't want to go through a long season of loneliness, you know, in my new place and I wanted to plug in really quickly. So I I made that kind of a focus in in prayer. And you know, right away I developed some really significant uh, friendships with colleagues, um, but also with a student and his wife who were very close to my age. Um, and he he graduated after the first year of my teaching at the seminary. And, and during that last year when he was a student, we became very good friends, uh, initially just me and him. His name is Aiden. And then with his wife, uh, whose name is Mel, uh, short for Melanie. And um, we they didn't have kids at the time. And we we spent a lot of time together. You know, we, we watched TV shows together. We'd cook for each other. We'd kind of be in each other's homes. And they both have really interesting stories. Aiden grew up in a really small town in northwest Alaska uh, that wow. was... Um, you know, it required people to really kind of watch out for each other and care for each other. So he was very used to, um, you know, people being in and out of his childhood home. Uh, Mel grew up on the mission field in Papua New Guinea, and there were always, you know, visitors in her home, uh, guests who stayed overnight, you know, missionaries who were traveling and they would host them. So they both had been really formed to kind of have a very hospitable and uh, kind of open-armed um, posture toward the world. Mm-hmm. And um, 
they at the time were doing at the time they were students, they were doing something that to me was pretty exciting and unusual. They were sharing a house with another married couple who were also students at the seminary. Um, and that couple had a child who uh, the, the, the son, Myron, was Aiden and Mel's godson. Um, we're all Anglicans and in the Anglican tradition, like a lot of, um, Christian traditions, um, when a baby is, is brought forward to be baptized, um, godparents will stand alongside the parents and will, you know, make public promises in front of the congregation to help raise the child in the Christian faith. And so Aiden and Mel had done that, uh, alongside their friends, Jamie and Gretchen for their son, Myron. So, so I'm kind of looking at this and thinking, this is really cool. And then uh, Jamie and Gretchen uh, uh, finished seminary and and moved back to where they were from, South Carolina. And Aiden and Mel decided to stay uh, here in in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. And they moved into my house uh, after oh, after um, yeah after they graduated. And so we, um, you know, that allowed us to just really deepen our our friendship. And um, a couple of summers ago, we actually uh, I'm, I'm kind of abbreviating a long story, but. Um, we decided that we wanted to actually no longer rent a house together. We wanted to uh, get a mortgage together. So we, mm-hmm. we, we, we moved into a different house now and I'm, I'm kind of on the third floor and they're on the second floor and we share the kitchen and living space on the, on the first floor. Um, but for us, this has all been kind of, uh, I mean, it's been organic. We've kind of discovered along the way what it means to try to be living life together Mm-hmm. And a big piece of that is uh, as they began to have children, they now have two children. Uh, Felicity is three years old and Solomon is uh, about six months old at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of in their friendship with me, they they asked me if I would be a godparent to both Felicity and Solomon. So, um, you know, we, we were we were looking for ways to kind of say this is not just a relationship of convenience where we you know, are helping each other out financially by living together. But this is actually a kind of Christianly intentional way of living our lives. That's about, you know, not only about enjoying one one another's company, but, you know, about deepening our faith together and Mm -hmm. and me now helping to raise, raise their children in the Christian faith. So, so we're, you know, we're constantly discovering what it looks like on a day-to-day basis, but that's, that's kind of the basic story of, of what we're up to. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. 
I, I'm just so curious. I have a million questions. So I would <laughs> love to know, I, I mean, even some like day-to-day things, like what does this look like in your day-to-day life then? It, you say you share common space and, and kitchen space. Is it right. like you're all doing family dinner together? Like it's it's day in, day out. You're all together all the time doing the family thing. What what does this look like? Yeah, day? yeah. So, so both uh, Aiden and I uh, work full-time and Mel has a, a part-time job as a nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, she works at an urgent care clinic, and that that ends up being a couple days a week. Um, and so, uh, Aiden is the um, uh, senior minister at the Episcopal Cathedral in downtown Pittsburgh. So he will he will sort of drive in and keep more or less nine to five hours, you know, during the day. And he he makes it a point to try to be home for family dinner, uh, in which we all sit down together. Um, uh, most nights, I, I wouldn't say we're we're always great at doing it every single night, but but mm-hmm. we try for, for most nights of the week to to be together for that time. And and I I teach uh, at the seminary as I mentioned, which is basically like five blocks from our house, so I'm able to kind of uh, run back and forth if need be okay. you know, throughout the day. Um, but it, it it sort of looks like um, you know a lot a lot of it right now, as you know, I'm sure from your friends with with small children. Um, you know, it's kind of all hands on deck in terms of helping yes. with parenting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so a lot of times, you know, I'm I'm running over to the babysitter to pick up the kids, and then running oh, back and trying great. to get dinner ready. You know, before Mel gets home from from the office, and so so yeah, it 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 very much feels like um, you know, like I say, we we really enjoy each other. We we enjoy being together, but it's also there's a sense of shared mission, if you like. Sure. You know, we're trying to we're trying to <laughs> So you're keep, coordinating keep... all of those things, exactly. which I, I just exactly. love that. Yeah. So it's more than just your sharing space. It really is, oh hey, someone who can pick up the kids at this time exactly. because I'm gonna be here. Exactly. Oh, I love that. Because yeah. that has to give you all of you a greater sense of we're all in this together and we're each able to help each other out when needed. That's right. That's, That's right. awesome. And, and I love, Mel has this joke that she says to her friends, she says, you know, I don't know how these poor two parent families do it. You need, you need at least three. <laughs> right now you yeah. outnumber them, right? You, you can, it's three on two right now. <laughs> exactly. 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 Oh, I, I love that. So yes, our, our, friends who have kids. Mike and I don't have kids. And so when Mm. we are with our friends who have kids, it is sort of like, okay, they've gained four more hands to corral. And it it is very fun in that way. Yeah. It is. And it's, you know, it's gratifying for me, I think, as a single person, because I've spent a lot of my life kind of thinking about how the church can kind of come alongside single people and make Mm. them feel included. But I've come to believe that a big part of that is not just treating single people as though they're sort of charity cases, people mm-hmm. to be like supported and, but treating them as people who have gifts to bring to the table, you know, treating them yeah. as people who, who are, um, you know, active and, and engaged. And so for me, um, you know, I, I, I very much feel as though I'm the recipient of love from mm-hmm. Aiden and Mel and from the children, but I also feel like I'm able to contribute in a, in a mm-hmm. significant way to, to the household and, and, you know, help, help. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a big help to them and that's very gratifying to me to, to have that kind of place, not only to receive love, but to give love. How do you think that a structure like this, that is not what we think of as the norm, um, how do you think that this sort of structure, it could better meet the needs that we're seeing in society today? Because not everyone is married and has the nuclear family right, with the parents right. and the kids and things are different. So what are you seeing in terms of how this could meet some needs that 
really have gone unmet. In yeah. Structures. Yeah. Well, I do think for a lot of people, you know, at the very nitty gritty practical level, it, it is financially helpful mm, <laughs> to sure. be able to share, you know, living space. And, oh, and yeah. I do have friends who are in more kind of expensive urban areas that are actually, um, you know, entering into relationships like this, partly for financial reasons, you know, mm-hmm. it just, it just makes sense. Um, but I think, you know, more theologically, I just think it, it it's, it's been a reminder to us that um, people are not meant to be isolated units. I mean, even, even a married couple, you know, I think, I think part of what um, has been a mistake in the way we as a culture have thought about romance and marriage is that this is like the relationship to end mm. all relationships. Like this is the yes. be all and end all. And I think for Aiden and Mel to, um, you know, kind of open up their space to me and to kind of have me in the, in the, um, in their daily life, I think has been a reminder to them that they're not, they're not just for each other and they can't be each other's everything. They, they need me and, and, you know, they need other friends as well. And, and, you know, likewise for me, I think, um, you know, we, we often talk about how the Bible is positive about singleness. You know, Jesus was single and Paul was single, but I really don't think the Bible is positive about singleness in the way that we practice it now, where it's this very mm. isolating thing and people are often lonely in their singleness. I mean, that's not what the Bible means by healthy celibacy or, 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 or the single mm-hmm. life. You know, it's, it's, it's something that's meant to be lived in community. Um, so I, I, I personally think, you know, this is kind of an experiment that we're embarked on, but I would love to see other people try things like this, just as a reminder that none of us can do life on our own. You know, we, we absolutely need to exist in community. Having this, um, kind of shifted perspective on what home life can be and what family definition can be, it feels, um, almost like uh, more enriching in terms of how the body should be functioning together. And um, so often it's, it's, I mean, life is busy and, and full, and it is so easy to just be focused on whoever is within your walls. And this actually opens the walls up a little bit broader. And so maybe in that way, it's, it's breaking down some of that sense that, Hey, it's just the spouse and the kids and, and it, it gives it more of that communal nature. So that's really exciting. Yeah. And we found, you know, I love that image of kind of, kind of cracking things open and breaking things open and having something wider and bigger. We found that, um, you know, another way that it's enriched our lives is each of us really enjoy hosting people. You know, we enjoy cooking for people people over. And so we've kind of gotten to know each other's friend groups, you know, because they'll come over to the oh, house. Fun. And yeah. you know, my family, rel- biological relatives will come and stay and their families will come and stay. So, so it's almost as though, you know, all of us have gained more relationships than we might have if we didn't live together in this way. Oh, I, I love that um, sense of the the growing connectedness. Exactly. Because That's nice way to put man, it. we all need that, don't Amen. we? It's like Amen. we we need more connectedness, not less. And it's again, because life is so busy, it's so easy just to stick with the relationships you have. But right. I always find that the more I know other people's friends and family, the better I know them personally. That's right. That's and right. so it's just so much richer. So yeah, absolutely. It's really great. 
Oh, well, Wes, I so appreciate you sharing your life and sharing these ideas with us. I know our listeners will also greatly appreciate it. We will make sure that they have all the info so they can uh, track you down online and, and hear more from you in that way. But thank you so much. I appreciate you being here with well, us. Thank you. And I hope that, you know, this maybe can be an inspiration to some of your listeners to try out some experiments in communal living yeah. themselves. So thanks for having me on. It's not lost on me that for some listeners, this may be the first time they have ever heard anyone describe this kind of living situation. And what Dr. Hill just shared with us could sound like it is the most unusual countercultural thing that has ever come to mind when it relates to the family. And, and it may very well be, especially in Western culture. But I think the thing that struck me as I was listening to him is that as unusual as this may be for us as Westerners, it is not necessarily an unusual formulation across the scope of church history and even around the world. I mean, if you look at church history, you have these models of um, household formation around the shared uh, commitment to Christ, whether, you know, in the Middle Ages, it was uh, monasteries or convents, or even later after uh, the Protestant Reformation, some of the ways that uh, Luther talked about the home as being a place of welcome and um, this new community that was that was forming where it wasn't isolated, it was a space of openness and hospitality. So I, I think it's fascinating that in the West, to the modern West, these things may hit our ears as really unusual. Right, right. And I, I thought the same thing, that it it may come across as like, whoa, what is this structure and how are they making that work? Like I even had those questions, like practically, how does this happen in your daily life? Like I wanted to know the, the ins and outs, how does this happen? But if we bring it back up a level to the beginning of our conversation on this topic, if we are looking at how our lives are um, revolving around other people's lives and how that connectedness then helps us to flourish because we know our family, we know our home, this helps us to become all that we are meant to be and to help us flourish. And so I so appreciated chatting with uh, with Wes. He was a delight to get to know and even our side conversations before the recording. I so enjoyed hearing how this, this family structure um, that he has entered into, it is allowing him um, and the the family that he's with it, it's allowing them to thrive and to be part of family in a way that is so needed like we need each other and i think that's the thing that i came away with after talking with him is the the way that these relationships are um, allowing your soul to thrive and allowing you to come alive in ways that you wouldn't otherwise i would love to hear uh, listeners take on this whole conversation. I know sometimes we throw them for a loop and frame things in ways that um, require a little extra thought and conversation to to figure out. And we would love to be part of that with you. As always, you can join us um, on Twitter at PersuasionCAPC, or you can join us in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum um, to 
have these conversations and take it to the next level. Thanks so much to Jonathan Clausen. He produces Persuasion and all the other shows in the Christ and Pop Culture Network. You can give him a listen at ChristandPopCulture.com, or you can go to iTunes and search for Christ and Pop Culture in the iTunes store, and all those shows will pop up for you. We'd love to have your ratings and reviews. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the first episodes in the series, we will link those up in the show notes. Be sure to catch those before you come on back for the rest of the series. We do appreciate all of you listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.